Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. And I'm quite amazed and very excited to say this is our 100th episode. I feel quite emotional about this being our centenary episode. Thank you to everyone who's helped build the Hilo into what it is. When we started this podcast two years and four months ago, I don't think we'd ever imagined that we would accrue over one million downloads per month and become the UK's number one women's podcast. Pandora. I've got a surprise for you. A nice centenary surprise. I've been squirrelling away with Joel. And Joel is our DJ CJ at the moment while CJ is snorkeling with turtles in Hawaii. And we've put together a little package. Radio 77. Hi, this is Deke Duncan with a smile on your radio dial wishing the Hilo a happy 100th episode. Deke Duncan. It's Margaret Robbie, and I wanted to wish a happy 100th episode to my favourite podcast, The Hilo. Congrats, Dolly, Pandora, and CJ. No, Margaret Robbie. Oh, doll, my fave. Happy 100th birthday to The Hilo from me, Clemmy Hooper. Thank you for continuing to bring topical and funny stories to our ears every week. You guys are amazing. And when you have a break, I feel bereft. It's Amy Lou Wood here, wishing the High Low Podcast a very happy birthday. Yippee! Tony Alderton here. I'm the High Low's biggest fan and wanted to wish you a very happy 100th birthday. Hello, Dolly and Pandora. Congratulations on 100 episodes of the High Low. Uh, Favourite part of the show, probably uh, the, the fact that I still get who is who confused even after 100 episodes uh, least favourite part is probably that you, you still haven't had me on the show yet which is rude uh, but congrats anyway uh, but maybe fucking invite me on over the next 100 episodes bye now hello Dolly hello Pandora this is uh, DJ CJ sorry I uh I need to stop introducing myself to people like that. This is Charlie, uh, wishing you a happy 100th episode of The High Low. The High Low obviously has great listeners, the best listeners around, but I don't think any of them can truly appreciate the amount of hard work that you guys put into every single episode. From uh, from day one, two and a half years of doing the uh, of doing the podcast, and you've taken it and you've built it and you've nurtured it into something that I'm uh, truly proud to be uh, associated with. So, um, yeah, have a great day. H- have a great podcast record, guys. Hello, it's Elizabeth Day, and I wanted to wish a very, very, very happy 100th episode to the Hilo. Uh, I can't believe you're 100. You look great for 100. You drink loads of water. And I want to say thank you so, so much for being so brilliant for us authors. Oh, Dolly and Pandora, you gloriously and rather annoyingly talented young people. This is Fee Glover over at the Fortunately Podcast, the one with Lady Garv Garv, wishing you a hugely happy birthday. You've done ever so well, and now it's time to stop and let us old people have our time in the sun. But if you do insist on keeping going for another centenary, I wish you the very best in a BBC kind of way. Okay. Hi, Pandora. Uh, Hi, Dolly. Congratulations on your very, very special and moving anniversary. By pure coincidence, I think we're approaching the 100th edition of Fortunately as well. But the plain fact is, you two are more successful than us. You're younger, you're more attractive. And whilst in my official capacity as the junior presenter of Women's Air. Yeah, I'm still the junior presenter of Women's Air. I really, really should celebrate female success. 
and I do officially. It just really gets on your tits. Anyway, bye. Hello, this is Stuart Heritage. Congratulations, Dolly and Pandora, on this huge achievement. 100 episodes of the Hilo, and I still can't quite tell your voices apart. Well done. Hello, it's Candice Carty-Williams here. I could probably actually just get away with saying Candice at this point because there aren't many um, of us around unless we're thinking of Candice Bergen. But she's a Candice, so it's a bit of a hard one. Anyway, I'm here to say the happiest of birthdays to the Hilo and with it a big congratulations and well done to Dolly and Pandora. Thank you so, so much for your support and your love and your kindness. Um, I will never forget how fun your podcast was and how fun it continues to be. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Dolly and Pandora. This is Gina Brown calling in to say happy, happy 100. I cannot believe that you've got to this bright old age. Of course, I happen to believe that episode 65, which I appeared on, was your all-time greatest episode but that's the course rather biased I do want to say though that you were the one to give me inspiration to do a podcast too and then I discovered that after 32 I've never worked so hard in my life and I could not believe what you've achieved so congratulations uh, you know you've done something fabulous you're now the hottest podcast around and everybody talks about you and I'm deeply deeply um very admiring of what you've done. So, full obeisance from episode 65, Kinya Brown. Oh my God, that is the best surprise. I feel like it's my birthday, not the high <laughs> birthday. I can't believe some of the people you got there. Tina Brown, our I absolute know. idol. I and know, I, what that a is babe. amazing that she said that we were her inspiration for starting her very successful podcast Fee and Jane your absolute faves the grumpy man is my dream boy Joel Golby your dream your dream writer Joel Golby and so many of our wonderful past guests Stuart Heritage Elizabeth Day love that you got Deke Duncan on there um Candice Amy Lou Woods from Sex Education yeah my god I'm so impressed with your shameless canvassing you also didn't mention Tony Alderton there which will make him quite upset oh and Tony Alderton <laughs> I'm so sorry it's more because I was I wasn't allowed to to react when I heard the recording Dolly said I had to sh- save all my reactions for afterwards so I'm trying to remember everyone we I heard also, I also texted your husband saying hi is there any way that you can get Zadie to say happy birthday and he replied saying sadly she's more of a one word gal <laughs> is there any way you can say happy birthday I thought we might phonetically be able to do it over the course of a day sort of piece it together but apparently no oh wonderful work I'm very very touched and proud of you and now on to Boris Johnson Oh, yes, in less exciting news. Of course, we have to talk about Conservative leader hopeful Boris Johnson, who hit the headlines last weekend when the police were called to his girlfriend Carrie Simmons' flat in South London after neighbours overheard him having a row with her. One neighbour claimed screaming had been heard from inside the property, along with a woman allegedly saying, get off me and get out of my flat. The neighbour made a recording of the altercation on which a man can allegedly be heard saying... And this is not funny, but I don't know why. It just, it did make me laugh. Get off my fucking laptop. (laughs) On the tape obtained by The Guardian, a woman's voice can be heard complaining that a sofa had been damaged with red wine and saying, you just don't care for anything because you're spoiled. You have no care for money or anything. Boris Johnson and his representatives refused to comment on the story in the days afterwards. They were resoundingly silent. He has more recently said in an an interview that it was simply unfair to involve loved ones in the debate. A photo suspected by many to be staged has circulated in the last couple of days of the pair of them holding hands and gazing into each other's eyes in a Sussex field. Someone on my Twitter timeline, I think it was Michael Hogan, tweeted... Ed Sheeran and Stacey Dooley talking about um, mowing the lawn because they're in like a really overgrown. And then someone else tweeted a picture saying, well, at least this wasn't the picture. And it was that um, picture of Katie Hopkins in the meadows when she was having an affair about 10 years ago. And it's like a really... I mean, that photo is incredibly intrusive. I still... I I mean, I can see that image right now. Quite random to have a tryst in a meadow. Um, what do you think of the school of thought? Because I know what you mean. There, there are kind of comic elements around this. I think it's it feels more comic because it's Boris Johnson, and that's, that's it. And that's why like, I'm very careful to say I know errors, that that's errors. that it's not funny. I know that it's not funny. I think just that 
that line. Yeah, what do you off. think of the school thought that says, this isn't funny, it's a powerful man shouting at his much younger lover? I can see why that has been an important part of the conversations around um, this new story. And I think many women who've been in relationships where there has been verbal or physical abuse would have felt, felt very strongly that this is potentially a very dangerous situation or maybe they were reading cues that they themselves are familiar with or people who work with um, victims of domestic violence. And so they felt like those cues, whether they were going to lead to anything or not, should be taken seriously. MP Jess Phillips said, Boris Johnson had the opportunity to give an explanation and to say to the nation that it was the right thing for the neighbours to call the police and the right thing for them to try to gather evidence. This is what everyone should do. But instead, his very poor character has picked himself over the safety of women in this country and the line that he is putting out is that this is a private family matter. Those of us who have campaigned for years have tried to move that dial and he is taking us back and that is dangerous. I do feel concerned that a domestic row in which it can clearly be heard that both are participating, both were angry with each other and speaking at each other in in raised voices. And it's quite a common row about being careless where sofas are concerned. It's certainly a common row in my own household. Is being escalated into a case of domestic abuse or just this idea that he's putting women's safety at risk. I do feel a bit nervous about that kind of conflation and that escalation, but I do understand the need for him to clarify Mm. what went on in light of the fact that so many women are physically abused by their male partner. The Telegraph columnist Alison Pearson was generating a lot of ire on Twitter. Did you see this? No. A lot of other journalists piled in for suggesting that the neighbours who recorded Boris and Carrie were like the Stasi. Oh yeah, I did see that. Twitter was quick to point out that the Stasi was the government spying on civilians who weren't towing the state line rather than civilians recording what they thought was a potentially scary situation created by a member of the government itself. And a final school of thought, some some people believe that it is in the public interest to hear the domestic fracas of a prime ministerial hopeful because it speaks to his larger character. I think that I agree with Jess Phillips in that I think that whether this was a dangerous situation or not, he shouldn't have dismissed and certainly his peers should not have sneered at the couple who rang the police as that is incredibly diminishing and disempowering of a safeguarding system in place for reporting domestic abuse, which undoubtedly could and does save lives if you think that you're hearing the the beginnings of an argument that sounds violent and it sounds like it could escalate to a really dangerous place. It's It was completely correct of the couple to have called the police and I think to to belittle that is very irresponsible. Yeah, I totally understand that point of view. The leadership contest is now between Jeremy Hunt and Boris Johnson. It is now up to the Conservative Party's 160,000 members to vote to choose the winner. Fun facts for you about the Conservative Party that I was quite surprised by when I read this weekend. 97% of the party members are white compared to 86% of the UK's um, population and nearly 40% are above 66 years of age, despite only 18% of Britain. And to be clear, that's not Conservative voters, those are Conservative Party members. Yes, of the 160,000 Conservative Party members. The two of them will go head-to-head at Hustings events around the country with their pitches to party members in the hope of winning their support. A candidate achieving more than 50% of the vote among party members will be declared leader of the party and, sadly, leader of our country. My friend Lauren's hot take on the uh, Boris Johnson-Carrie Simmons row, by the way, and this is obviously, there are many more important things to observe that are much more urgent within that discussion. But her hot take, which I found quite interesting, is that it shows Boris Johnson has only ever lived in very large detached houses because he's obviously not used to having neighbours. I think that's an entirely valid thought, and maybe he's used to multiple sofas, so the whole... (laughs) get off my laptop and oh god my red wine spilled is it says, more urgent because there's only one it says more about his own interiors environment maybe than anything, than anything else. else in the news in the last week a cyclist has been ordered to pay a hundred thousand pounds in legal fees after he hit a pedestrian who was crossing a road whilst looking at her phone in an unsurprisingly controversial case robert hazeldean has been ordered to pay Gemma brushett four thousand one hundred sixty one pounds and 79 pence in compensation after their rush hour collision in july 2015 after the judge who sounds slightly odd to be honest ruled that an eight millimeter scar on her lip 
did not detract from her very attractive demeanour. Hazel Dean has also been told... What, that's so fucking weird. That's why he only had to pay four grand. But he's also been told he has to pay all the legal fees, which are expected to top 100,000 for the two-day trial. I'm interested and slightly concerned that this case may set a precedent whereby people are not held accountable for looking at their mobile phones in situations which clearly require safety. I don't agree at all with um, the fact that he has to pay that much money. It was also a green light, so it was arguably his right of way. And the tube pusher has been found guilty of two counts of attempted murder. Many of you remember the horrible story of Paul Crossley, who shoved 91-year-old Sir Robert Malpas onto the tracks at Marble Arch in April of last year after trying to push Tobias French at Tottenham Court Road. He will serve a minimum of 12 years. A judge described him as a grave and enduring risk to the public. And Oxford University has received the biggest Single philanthropic gift in its history, £150 million from the American billionaire who co-founded the Blackstone Private Equity Group. Stephen Schwartzman's donation will be used to build a new centre for the humanities with a focus on artificial intelligence and its impact on history. £150 million is incredible. Slightly wish that I'd gone to Great Ormond Street, but anyway, amazing, amazing contribution to hopefully discovering lots of interesting new things. And parents who sent cash to their son who had joined ISIS have been found guilty of sending money that could have funded terrorism. John Letts and Sally Lane sent £223 to their 23-year-old son, Jack, in Raqqa in the hope that he would use it to escape Syria. The couple say that they had been badly let down by the police and government in their attempts to get Jack, who had converted to Islam aged 16 before leaving for Iraq when he was 18, to learn Arabic and becoming extremist. They they were both handed a suspended sentence of 12 months. And the president of Colombia has criticised the hypocritical middle-class drug takers in the West, who he says claim to care about the environment, whilst turning a blind eye to the environmental as well as the social damage of cocaine. Ivan Duque told The Guardian that thousands of hectares of tropical forests in Colombia, the biggest world producer of cocaine, have been cleared to make way for coca production. I think this kind of criticism of the woke who do coke is very valid. I agree. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I think that's why concerns around politicians taking cocaine, I do understand with that drug in particular why there is such an ethical implication there. Mm. In lighter news... Yes, please, we need some. At the end of last week, a total dame of a woman, pictured drinking pink gin and tonic from a wine glass on the tube, was celebrated on social media. The blonde commuter wearing sunglasses and jewelled flip-flops with socks has been dubbed Pink Gin Tube Lady on Twitter. She was travelling on the Northern Line, but it's not known when or what time it was when she was spotted. Mark Locke from Scotland, who shared the picture, wrote, To the lady drinking pink gin and tonic from a glass on the Northern Line, I salute you. Classy. Pink Gin Lady was praised for being fabulous glam and next level. However, some did point out that socks in sandals are illegal, but they all quickly agreed that she could get away with it. She was even hailed a hero despite it being illegal to drink alcohol on the tube, as we remember in the recent case of Diane Abbott. Pink Gin Lady was then spotted again on a train this past weekend, glass in hand, sunglasses firmly on her head. Goes without saying that I think Pink Gin Lady is a hero of our time and I hope I'm lucky to spot her on the tube one day because the Northern Line is my local line. I'm unsure of the ethics of taking pictures of people on the tube. I know, that I is know. A, that is a jolly meme and it surprises me. Not a single jot that you are... <laughs> currently just going round and round on the Northern Line trying to find her. Before we move on to the mailbag, I must ask you, Dolly, have you heard of the Forever Roll? No. So it came out in April, but it's gathering more traction. Let me tell you. It's Charmin's Lou Roll for Millennials, which lasts up to three months. I have zero idea why it's targeted at Millennials. Do we not like shopping for basic sanitation? Do we shit a lot? Is it both? So the Forever Roll is huge. Oh, thank God, I thought you were going to say it's reusable. <laughs> it's huge, and as Joel pointed out, presumably it would require a new loo roll holder. Or, well. a new, or a new bathroom, in some cases. I mean, uh, all of those things, possibly. Some people have rightly said this is the most pointless and frankly quite weird and revolting invention ever and imagine bumping into someone you fancy with this industrial size <laughs> loo roll though I did read an article which put an impressively positive empowered spin on it by Gabriella Paella on New York Magazine's The Cut website saying that she would be delighted to run into an ex with a big toilet paper roll because she says it says 
Look at all this toilet paper I'm buying for myself and my multiple sex partners. I am so busy I can barely be bothered to buy toilet paper except for once a season. Ciao, ciao. <laughs> What's in the mailbag this week? Daisy Buchanan's piece about weight loss prompted a lot of thoughtful responses, including one letter which likened her piece to a rival fallacy. The misconception that as soon as you achieve a big life goal, losing weight, getting married, buying a house, getting promoted, etc., you will instantly become happier and more satisfied. Your discussion reminded me of an article by A.C. Shilton in the, in the New York Times about a rival fallacy, the illusion that once a big goal is achieved, we will reach lasting happiness and how this continual strive to achieve the next thing can actually distract us from the goals that genuinely bring fulfilment and happiness, i.e. spending more time with family and friends. Thank you for that. We will share the piece in the show notes. An endocrinologist shared this tidbit. I'm an endocrinologist and I see patients for management of obesity often. The medical literature about obesity and bariatric surgery perhaps reflects that there are some people who expect to be happier when they lose weight. Probably there are people who are much happier once they are thinner and more comfortable in themselves. But the literature also shows that the rates of suicide after surgery are higher than in those who don't have surgery. That's very interesting. I've always wondered whether the surgery didn't bring those people the contentedness they thought it would, but the literature isn't clear about any of that. Another very interesting letter. Thank you so much for that. Dolly, what have you been enjoying this week? A listener very kindly pointed out that I had started on series three of Easy on Netflix. Am I not that listener? No. Oh, well, I also pointed oh, out did to you, you that <laughs> you had two whole series to go before. Yeah, it, I mean, it's you got me into it. such a well. classic Grandpa Alderton thing to do. Um, and I had, in fact, yeah, had two whole series to catch up on. Many of the episodes uh, of which featured the characters I was watching in series three and loving so much. I was watching their story anti-chronologically, which is maybe brilliant and makes me a genius. To remind anyone who might have missed the episode when I talked about it, Easy is my new favourite TV programme which is directed and written by Joe Swanberg and follows a group of people in Chicago all navigating various modern anxieties. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's an anthology narrative so most of the stories are episodic and self-contained but they subtly intertwine with each other at certain moments and I think it makes sense each each episode makes sense as a kind of parable on modern time or an exploration of kind of modern urban malaise but it also makes sense as a sort of overall discussion it you know there's a kind of there are two ways in which to watch the show and I just adore both of them well you got me really into it as well and I was googling all around it and I was even more impressed to read that it is completely improvised that so doesn't John surprise me at Swanberg all. just gives them a three or four page script and that amazing scene that you spoke of last week or the week before in series three when she's saying that you know polyamory doesn't work for her mm. that nine minute yeah. she just did that that's all improvised have you got to the amazing one where there's a woman and her boyfriend and her ex is back in town it's all in Spanish no, I haven't watched that one yet. That's a real um, moral uh, conundrum about consent, and I can't wait till you watch that one. That's the one that begins with them in the sofa shop, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I've got that all geared up for this evening. <laughs> I think it's such a special show. It's funny, as Pandora said, because of its kind of improvised nature, it, there's a sense of hyper-realism. There's really, really painful moments as well as very, very funny and silly ones. And it covers stories such as couples venturing into non-monogamy, uh, a famous male artist having to confront his own power and how he may have been wielding his power for his own sexual advantage. And there's a particularly brilliant episode in series one featuring Orlando Bloom. Oh, no! I could not watch him. Really? I can't watch him. I think he's such a... He played that awful character very well, I think. He did. He, he did play a character completely... And when he just, like, dives in for the... <laughs> It's Orlando Bloom and Marlon Ackerman and they're playing a married couple with a young baby who, this is what I thought really reflected real life very well because so many of my married friends have done this. Both of them were on single people's phones looking at dating apps oh, and yes, they the both best. kind of <laughs> expressed regret at the fact that even though they're madly in love with each other and they're so happy they found each other that they missed out on this period totally. of their lives which I know lots of you know people in relationships who say that so instead they decided to go sort of shopping together for yeah I haven't done woman. that bit yet <laughs> I know that's what you and Ollie are going to do on the sofa tonight. They decide to download Tinder, do a joint profile and, and look for a uh, third party, a woman to join them in bed just for one night. Um, 
And, you know, I've seen, as I've said before, I find polyamory and kind of and any sort of relationships or sexual encounters that involve more than two people, I'm utterly fascinated by. And I've seen so many depictions of it that have been so overblown or so unrealistic or kind of very macabre. I thought it was so realistic, incredibly uncomfortable and uh, just a really interesting dynamic to watch play out. But Orlando Bloom does play this character where he's kind of seemingly very charming, but totally self-absorbed. There's also a fantastic episode with Emily Ratajkowski in which she plays a self-dubbed young artist who draws on her own life for her material, uh, which manifests as taking a series, incessant series of selfies to document every moment of her life and then exhibiting them. A debate around privacy and permission emerges when she sleeps with Mark Maron's character and uses an image of him without asking and it was a really riveting episode I thought and like all of Easy the story managed to kind of chew over the most pertinent morsels of the zeitgeist in a way that feels totally organic and somehow completely unmannered. Because there's a, I thought as well there was an interesting distinction drawn between um, writing, where he does graphic novels Mm. but writing about someone and photographing them because photography is seen as the kind of lesser, more exposing medium. And he's saying, you know, how could you take a picture of me sleeping after we have sex and put it in an exhibition and not ask me if it's okay? And she said, well, were you going to write about having sex with a, you know, young woman in her early 20s? And he was like, well... Well, yeah, because that's what I do. And she's like, well, this is what I do. So, yeah, yeah, I agree. That was a very interesting... um, There was a really interesting issue at the crux of that. Pandra and I went to see Booksmart on Sunday. We did. And I think it's the only film that I've ever watched that's made me miss being a teenager. (laughs) I really, really enjoyed it. I actually didn't realise it followed that teen movie trope of it all being set in one night and being a sort of quest film in search of a of a very specific good time. I thought Caitlin Deaver and Beanie Feldstein were really funny and utterly charming and beguiling. I loved how it was shot uh, with that sort of cartoonish quality. I think Olivia Wilde is a phenomenal director. Uh, Really felt like it had its own very distinct look and feel that was both nostalgic and very futuristic, but also sort of timeless, which I know, sorry, that sounds like the sort of thing a drunk person at a dinner party says, but it just felt very, very distinct, its feel. And at moments it felt like there were nods to, you know, films like Pretty in Pink. And then other moments it felt like I was in a a kind of realm of cinema land that I've never been in before. I love how it really showcased a new kind of teen movie, which I hope reflects uh, the real life of teens now, where the kids were not I shouldn't really call them kids because I've looked up the ages of all the actors and they're all about five years younger than us. But the characters in the film were not cruelly bullied for specifically their sexuality, their gender presentation or their weight. Which made me think of sex education in that respect. It's quite an idealised teenage utopia, but that progression works really well on screen. Yeah, and I think for, for, for some enclaves of... Um, Western society that is idealised and wishful but you know I've, I've got friends who are teachers in inner city schools and they do tell me that that is the reality now it really is becoming much more progressive kids don't care about the shit that we cared about so much when we were younger and yeah I just think that's really encouraging well yeah that's great if that's the case and I think that seeing that in art of course marks progression and Lisa Kudrow also has to get a shout out for my favourite role in it as this very overly loving, overly accepting mother to a lesbian daughter and she just (laughs) nailed that part and was hilarious. I adored Brene Brown on Russell Brand's Luminary podcast, Under the Skin, and he very much adored her too. He says in the intro he fell a bit in love with her and it almost gets quite uncomfortable at, at one point. You really feel this spiritual connection between them that feels quite charged. But it's really, really Spiritual great conversation. Is that what they're calling it now? <laughs> There's this very funny bit where she's talking about how much she loved, I can't remember who, but it was a pop star or something when she was younger because she had short hair and she really wanted short hair. And then she carries on talking for about three minutes about something really philosophical and deep. And then Russell Brand is completely silent. He's like, yeah, I'm sorry, you're going to have to repeat all of that. I just suddenly started thought, thinking of you in a physical way. <laughs> And it's really, really awkward for like two minutes. But it's a really, really good discussion and very far-reaching on politics, mass psychology, parenting and faith. And it was just riveting. At the top, he said it's one of the 
best conversations he can remember having and you really do feel that um, connection between them when they speak they're working out a lot of things together they're thinking aloud together in they're having a lot of realizations in real time and it does feel quite electrifying to listen to it at some points because they're both very kind of curious minds and they both have uh, I believe <laughs> some people might disagree with me I think they both have access to a huge amount of experience and wisdom in them and they really kind of challenge each other's theories and build on each other's theories over the course of this discussion something that Brene Brown said in it that I haven't been able to stop thinking about is she's talking about the notion of compassion she said that in her research there was a sustained period of time where she really wanted to find what the connecting factor was between the hyper empathetic the hyper caring the hyper compassionate people who dedicate so much of their life to service and she said the most surprising thing that they found which was the only thing that they connect that connected all of these people uh, was rock solid boundaries so the people who were able to give so much love time and focus to others very very distinct sense of what they do and don't want and what they will and won't say yes to and it was just so so informative to me because as someone who has really struggled with boundaries before because me kind of keeping everyone happy, not even keeping everyone happy, making everyone like me in a very superficial way is more important than anything else. What happens if you do that is it then drains you of any genuine use and love and help that you can be to people because you're constantly drawing on this sort of fake energy to keep everyone happy, which means that I think you then feel resentful when it comes to moments where mm. actual empathy is needed. So I just found that so interesting and it's really changed the way I think about things. But it's this clip that I wanted to play on the meaning of spirituality that came from Brené Brown that I uh, really enjoyed listening to. I define spirituality as the belief in the inextricable connection between human beings and something that's grounded in love and goodness. I mean, that's how I describe spirituality. For, you know, for me, it's God. For my dad, it's fishing, like whatever, like nature. But there are people that don't have that. But let me tell you, I've peered into that abyss. I want no part of that yeah, darkness. I can't go down there ever again. I really, I, I, I have a, as a, as a researcher, I. I have been attracted and seduced by the intellectual arguments of atheism and the people that espouse them. But that is that is more bleak than anything I've ever experienced, that idea. As always, I adored this week's episode of Fortunately, which featured an interview with actor, writer and grief cast host Cariad Lloyd. The conversation on grief is a really interesting one and I think Cariad is doing such amazing work to open up discussions on grief which is something that inevitably is going to touch all of us and yet we are still so uncomfortable talking about for some reason but the clip i wanted to play was some absolutely classic fee and jane chat at the top on what they call cutlery chuff about the bits that you find in your cutlery drawers <laughs> it's when they're at their absolute best for me Class A platinum conversational meandering, and I think it takes really very, very clever and very funny people to waffle with such devastating effect. What are those things that mass in cutlery drawers? Oh. You know, do you know what I yes, mean? The bits. They're just bits. Cutlery chuff. Cutlery chuff? Yeah. Where else would you find that? Um, thank you for coming up with that, because you're absolutely right. God, where does that come from? Does that come what off the cutlery? Is it? Because I, I clean up... He's looking complete, but of course he doesn't have a cutlery drawer. I think he might very much like our friend Greg Wallace, might be a first-time cutlery user. I have a knife and a fork and a spoon. Do you entertain a lot? Or? <laughs> Not really. Yes. I just want to know. I Just tell me what you think it is. It's, it's crumbs, it's bits of wafery-type content matter it's dark matter it is isn't it's it? dark dark matter how does it sneak in there i don't know yeah and every now and again you will find yourself if you're me probably once every six months i just get the cutlery and just throw it all in the sink and then get rid of the cutlery chuff sometimes then start I just again blow very hard do you ever do that <laughs> <laughs> i can't help you there love this podcast is now we're just entering a period <laughs> of mourning. It's pathetic, isn't it? Absolutely pathetic. What have you been enjoying, Panda? 
I read a fascinating piece on The New Yorker by Anna-Louise Sussman on whether or not we should redefine the definition of fertility. It's so thorough and searching and what it discusses is that fertility being merely a physiological thing is outdated namely it doesn't cover same-sex couples who want to procreate in their case it's more of a social infertility but social infertility also affects heterosexual couples too and in the piece Farron Tang who's a reproductive justice fellow at Yale Law points out that physiological and social infertility can actually coexist within the same partnership In most cases, at least one member of a medically infertile heterosexual couple is really socially infertile. They could achieve pregnancy if they abandoned their current partner and found another. She also grapples with the question of whether single men, gay or straight, should also be considered socially infertile, part of a larger, more complicated discussion about whether medical insurance coverage could or should be limited to medical procedures involving one's own body, since single men would require donor eggs and surrogates it is um it really requires you to think this piece and it Mm. taps into a wider debate that i'm seeing discussed more and more about whether or not having children is a privilege or a right Mm. and this becomes particularly pertinent when discussing whether ivf should be made free for all at the moment in the uk it's a postcode lottery some boroughs will provide you with free IVF others won't in America it's the same with uh, differing insurance policies Um, at the moment and this was the starting point for this piece it is a grey area for same-sex couples and medical insurance in the states who have to prove infertility in order to get access to um, the IVF process Uh, but that becomes quite tricky when they're not going through a reproductive process that a straight couple are like how do you prove infertility when you can't actually procreate without intervention. It's incredibly interesting, regardless of your opinion on the right versus privilege debate. Instantly, I'm unsure of where I stand. I need to read and think a lot more about it. Uh, so I really recommend that. I loved India Night in the Sunday Times magazine on a good night's sleep. It's something I've thought about so much in the last few years as I've um, developed insomnia but I also think it is part of getting older is realising yeah I remember for a while you were going to bed early and then you were waking up at six do you remember it was like you just discovered the elixir to life I absolutely get so excited about an early night now which having a toddler at home you know luckily I'm in quite a lot anyway but she says something that I think is quite interesting which is definitely a realization that I have had I think you've had and lots of friends have had which is this idea of like a busy diary and that being a kind of you know proof that you're living this really rich life she said I was knackered all the time but surely this was simply the price one paid for having a social life and wasn't a social life reward for work no the sofa is reward for work with her on that admittedly I was always trying to wriggle out of 90% of social plans you'd think I might have twigged earlier that it would have been simpler to say no in the first place but there's this strange thing where you think having a full diary is the same as having a full life which of course it isn't I agree there's one thing I would flag there because this is a conversation that I do have with my friends quite a lot I do think that's a relationship privilege yes I can understand that yeah there, there, there is a reason why I, as you know, I go out a lot, and a lot of it is that you know I want to see my friends, and I do find that relaxing. I do find myself very tired often when that aligns with a very, very intense work week. But there is something much more, not for all single people, but for a lot of single people, I think there is something that's much more significant and terrifying about lots of nights on the sofa on your own. I would also say though that your um almost not strategic in your nights out but you think really hard about how you fill them your nights out when I talk to you are a mix of cinema theatre going dancing with your friends Mm -hmm. going for dinners in new places going to museums like you have a real variety in when you're going out and you tend to do it with people you really trust or people you're really interested in I feel like what she's talking about reminds me of what I did in my early 20s which is that I thought I had to be out six out of seven nights a week to be like winning at life yeah yeah, and you're not really enjoying any of it you're just doing it to be out Mm -hmm. I don't feel like you do that but I think that is a really interesting point about relationship um privilege because I just think I remember my god I can't believe I'm quoting bloody James Corden but I remember James Corden on his desert under saying I was only ever going out to find someone to stay in with 
Oh. And look, that's not me, but there is a bit of a degree with it. Of it, do you know what I mean? Like, I think I. If, Such a lovely. If you're thing actively to say. looking for a partner and you're a single person, you can't do it on the sofa. You, exactly. Well, that's, I mean, you can do it on the sofa. No, my be- <laughs> my one of my best friends, Sarah, said to me once, um, "The man of your dreams isn't going to walk through your living room while you're watching Gogglebox." <laughs> and I just wish he could. She also talks as well, and I think this is such a thing, and it was slightly shattered by Ariana Huffington sort of shattering her own head when she hit the desk from too little sleep. But she says, there's a pointless machismo in being able to get by on very little sleep and a louche glamour that attaches itself to being a night owl that is absent from the early bird with its dreary diligence and worm catching. You're supposed to be one or the other, but it's entirely possible to switch. And I loved that. I think there is, often I find myself sort of apologising for being in a lot at night, even though it absolutely categorically suits both my personal and professional life right now. And there is, I notice sometimes actually whenever I say to my sister, I've got to go to a work thing tonight, she's like, God, how cool. And I'm like, no, I mean, again, relationship privilege, but also have, you know, having a young child sort of necessity is that doesn't have the allure for me anymore at all and actually I feel so much fuller in my life being home more because then when I'm out I've got more to give yeah exactly and I do think it's important that we don't fixate too much on these distinctions of night owl or early bird because I think that so much of it is a state that's in flux dependent on life yeah life at the time and also place of psychology you know something i've realized in the last couple of years while work has been pretty intense a lot of the time i've had massive problems with sleep and a lot of the time that has been because of anxiety and stress but i've got to be honest a lot of the time it's because the day's been really exciting and i don't want it to end and i'm really excited about waking up for the next day and i've really had to recognize this kind of childlike addiction i've developed in later life ironically of being addicted to being awake and not wanting to miss out. So I think that, you know, depending... That's like a really positive way as well of looking at having less sleep, you know? Yeah. Because we talk about not having enough sleep. It's like, it's a very dreary, worrying, anxiety-making thing. But the idea that it could come from a sense of excitement of not yeah. wanting something to end... I do think there's an element of that with me. Yeah. It's a nicer spin on it. But I, I really do think that Indian Night does so much good contemplation of the things that we fetishise in modern life that potentially just don't suit everyone and could be very damaging for, for certain temperaments and, and certain physiologies. I'll be sure to read that. I always love India's column. I thoroughly enjoyed a very charming novel called Evie Drake Starts Over by Linda Holmes, which comes out, I think, this week in the UK. She's a pop culture critic for NPR and her book is sort of a love story, but with a really redemptive quality which is that it's two people who are completely broken by life one has been widowed one just lost his top sporting career but there's twists to both of those it's a less straightforward kind of scenario and they both need to find themselves before they can find each other but it's written in a a really lovely way and I just guzzled it and if I was a women's magazine I'd call this a great pool lounger read for the summer Oh, maybe I'll take that away next week. It's really sweet and it's quite a nice palate cleanser because I've been reading a lot of non-fiction, which Mm. is great, but I've been sort of underlining every second sentence with a pencil. Oh, is this book book prep? Sometimes it's nice just to not think and not underline. And that's not me doing a disservice to her book. It's not... It's not badly written. It's not thoughtless. It's not. It's not vapid or vacant. It's just you can get immersed in the story and nothing more. Yeah, you do. I really do find myself craving uh, the immersiveness of fiction more and more. Yeah, I think I just need to make sure that m- maybe I'll do that thing which I'm kind of normally against, but I'm sort of doing more and more now where I've got two books on the go. Yeah, maybe I've got like my lighter or more immersive story and then my my thinky my thinky non-fiction i was speaking of thinking non-fiction totally engrossed in alison p davies piece about the demise of babe.net for new york magazine's the cut did you know babe.net had what is babe.net for those of you unfamiliar babe.net sprung onto such a millennial name babe.net sprung into public consciousness with a piece last year at the beginning of last year about the comedian Aziz Ansari titled oh that's why I remember it yeah titled I went on a date with Aziz Ansari it was the worst night of my life and that piece we discussed it on the high low didn't we yeah we did it generated a ton of controversy from those who considered it 
a irresponsible contribution to the Me Too movement mm. or the way in which Babe.net told the story itself. This piece deep dived into the workings of Babe.net in the aftermath of that story and what Alison P. Davies kind of discovered in this very self-consciously self-aware office is 20-year-olds managed by 24-year-olds managed by 28-year-olds. People getting drunk together, people sleeping together, younger women feeling that like they were taken advantage of by senior management. There were often sexual relationships, a wide level of total mismanagement. The claims were not in like some of the claims we heard, I think a few years ago about vice. And it sounds quite vicey in the way that it was run. This kind of quite fly by the seat of your pants. Supposedly ideologically anarchic. Yes, except that like, the the humans are also fallible and they also, you know, get drunk and have sex and, and have emotions and have social media accounts. You know, they're not these, like, incredibly cool... They also still have, like, bills to pay and yeah. families, those things that root them, you know? Many of the writers uh, for Babe.net were in their early 20s, fresh out of college, and the writer of the Aziz Ansari piece ended up leaving the website in the aftermath of the piece's publication because she felt so incredibly unsupported in the furore as... Alison lays bare there's an incredible level of hypocrisy that these stories for young women about empowered young women who are calling out famous men who act inappropriately on dates were actually operating in an office governed by the sexual braggadocio of a few British journalists in their late 20s. They were also all on salaries of $30,000. It's not a New York living wage, although it is unfortunately what I think a lot of people in New York are paid. But suffice to say, this was a very low salary mm. Um for an extremely demanding emotionally and artistically job. Um, If you are remotely interested in the evolution of media, digital media, media culture, office politics, basically, hi, that's me, I'm very interested in all those things. It is a scorcher of a piece. And it's also just an interesting tale of how yet another once promising digital brand, much like Gawker, hit the skids. Mm. So I really recommend that long read. Support for the Hyla comes from Regenerate Enamel Science. Regenerate Enamel Science is the first system that can regenerate tooth enamel mineral. 80% of common teeth problems such as sensitivity and yellowing can be caused by enamel erosion and acid attacks. And one of the major misconceptions is that erosion occurs only due to unhealthy diets such as sugary drinks and junk food. In fact, even fruit can cause acid erosion. Years of research in Regenerate Enamel Science laboratories has resulted in a three-step oral care regime consisting of an advanced toothpaste, advanced enamel serum and advanced foaming mouthwash. So snazzy, that serum for your teeth. The packaging of it is very snazzy as well. Designed to reverse the early enamel erosion process, Regenerate restores your Nash's mineral content and micro-hardness. For many of us, a lot of effort goes into our beauty regimes for hair and skin, but not so much for our teeth. I'm obsessed with teeth. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't, but now I do. And now everyone else can love their teeth too, Pandora. Just head down to a local boot store to discover Regenerate Enamel Science and the power behind healthy-looking teeth. It's our favourite toothpaste for ensuring that our gnashes look healthy and fresh. To learn more about the science, please visit regeneratenr5.co.uk. Thank you very much to Regenerate Enamel Science for supporting our podcast and helping our smiles dazzle. A story that grew surprising wingspan, hogging entire pages of the New York Times, the Times, the airwaves of the BBC, and enraging the whole of Twitter, in a way, is that of the American influencer who allegedly sponconned her own engagement. For those of you who are not digital natives, sponcon is sponsored content. It's when an individual produces social content for a brand that they are then paid for. Marissa Casey Fuchs, a New York-based influencer and the brand partnerships director for Gwyneth Paltrow's lifestyle brand Goop began sharing her engagement journey with her banker boyfriend Gabriel Grossman last week. It begun with a treasure hunt through Manhattan and the Hamptons followed by trips to Miami and Paris with groups of friends joining them at various pit stops. My favourite bit is the engagement video where she completely breaks down into sobs in front of this French chateau and just goes what is happening? Engagement journey. But it didn't take long for people to start questioning what was happening (laughs) and how much the 30-year-old not only knew about her own engagement but had planned it. It all happened when The Atlantic got hold of a pitch deck which had been sent to various brands detailing the itinerary of the trip 
and where branded content could be inserted. For example, I'm making this up, but trip on a boat, you provide the swimming costume, we'll share a pic to Instagram and tag the brand. The deck reads, this summer, Marissa of at Fashion Ambitionist, that's her Instagram handle, will be pulled in surprise, created by the centre of her life, Gabriel. Which is incidentally... What I know you describe your husband as. Absolutely. To continue, he will remotely ask her to take an unexpected and sentimental journey to him. A journey that will encompass many familiar stops along the way that offer their own unique gifts. We're pleased to offer your brand the opportunity to align with this momentous occasion and the beautiful cities she will be visiting along the way. In a statement to the Times, Marissa denied her involvement and said that the deck was the work of her best friend, Alicia Zank Evans, a social media strategist, and her fiancé. Alicia worked hand in hand with Gabe to make sure every detail was perfect, she said. This also included them reaching out to hotels and brands that I would want to possibly wear during the week's moments. I know people are saying that everything was sponsored, but that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, it could be further. Gabe has paid for every inch of this proposal, except for the handful of small summer dresses that were gifted by friends at companies I've been friends with forever. I've got a question for you, Dolly. Are the dresses themselves small? (laughs) Or is it the clutch of them that is small? What do you make of the story, Dolly? Grim, ghastly, emotionless, exhibitionist, soulless, consumerist and quite horrifying. But nothing I haven't seen before. I'm really amazed at how horrified people are by this. I've seen so many Sponcond weddings before where influencers have not just been gifted something or given a discount for something to post online which I have to say I think is very different to being paid by a company to include something in their wedding posts and the same goes for women and their birth content and their baby content I've seen women going through these incredibly intimate moments of their life and it will say in paid partnership with a brand I don't know why this is so many leaps and bounds away from that which I just feel litters the internet I was pretty surprised by the level of press and ire this generated because I thought we were well-versed to people on the make by now. I mean, her handle is Fashion Ambitionist, for God's sake. I do wonder if a few free frocks, which is what she says she got out of it, made this whole thing worth it or even required a whole deck. And if she only got a few free dresses out of it, did that whole deck fail? Did, did all the hotels not end up hosting her if Gabe ended up paying for the whole thing? It's kind of confusing what she's what she's saying. Anyway, I think it's really interesting for several reasons. Firstly, the celebrification of everyone. There's an increasing sense that everyone can live that Hollywood lifestyle if they just sell themselves hard enough. And this is terrifying, but seemingly true. And I also think that when this adjoins with modern wedding culture, it becomes particularly toxic. Plenty would agree with you there. Kate Monroe wrote for Refinery29, the very mention of the word wedding has a galvanic effect, especially if it's a wedding few of us could ever hope to afford. The precious surrounding weddings is not dissimilar to that surrounding social media. A convergence of the two is sure to get under people's skin. Secondly, we are pre-designed to hate people on the up. Again, I refer you to her unashamedly aspirational Instagram moniker. And there's something so grabby about someone trying to pitch out their supposedly surprise engagement. For many, this Insta engagement is just another millennial scam. It reeks of fire festival. Is it real because of their love or because it got the appropriate amount of corporate funding to make it viable? Said marketing professional Boz Boshan. I also think it's the alleged lying element that people have really disliked. I think the thing that has riled people is the idea of a woman being so strategic. She puts together a slideshow for her own engagement that she will then pretend is spontaneous. Even though she denies that that was the case, that she even had any awareness of it, ha- of that this was happening, I think speculation on that brings into question her authenticity, which, as we know, is the most sort of precious and coveted of modern ideals, apparently. Thirdly, they clearly both live a life of wealth. He's a vice president at Morgan Stanley, which will come with a huge salary. And she works for Goop, which is eye-rolled for its bouginess by as many as it is adored. So this comes across as not only gross, but, like, frankly confusing. You know, if you can afford to pay for all yourself, wouldn't you just rather do that than putting together a deck? Side note... Who needs an entire engagement week? Dolly, given your history on hens, stags and weddings, I think you could go to town on this. I have been confronted with the engagement week before, (laughs) I have to say. 
And yes, you do wonder why they would need to be flogging their wares quite so aggressively at all and sundry if they've got so much disposable income. Why wouldn't she just have bought the dresses in the hotel stays herself in this particular instance and avoided this public embarrassment? Something that made me really think about with this story, and actually it's a word you you used earlier, is the word toxic. It's become a very zeitgeisty buzzword and it is particularly applied at the moment to social media. I saw a lot of people using it in the context of this story and I saw it mentioned a lot when a British influencer was rinsed for that staged birthday breakfast last year where the pancakes curled in the plates were revealed to be tacos. The definition of toxic is poisonous and I think that this Warholian desire to be famous if even on Instagram is infectious and insidious do you think it's specifically toxic I think maybe I've just heard this word too much it's become like gaslighting for me I think this specific story combines a few very pertinent modern anxieties which have combined in a way that could be described as toxic Mm. in that they perpetuate a culture of lies and exaggerations Mm. from the content creators and the brands jealousy disorientation or a sense of inadequacy from their followers and then ultimately a public shaming on those who posted Mm. the content in the first place not the brands you know i have to say so it's ultimately terrible for everyone involved and again as a disclaimer i really don't think this story or this couple is any worse than so many people who are using their personal life online to align with corporations for money and pass it off as a fake intimacy with their audience i think this is happening everywhere i think maybe just a number of factors have made this particular story feel like it's a more extreme example than others and also it's really easy to laugh at that's the like really grim Mm. truth is it's it's it, it's a fucking cheesy video, you know? Yeah. It's easy for people to be like... Yeah, got to say, even if we take out the SponCon element, I still would have had a nice old giggle at it. Yeah. You know, just a horrible old bitch. I think this story might have dipped under the radar or it might have ended up seeing, being seen as more comic than toxic if they'd been more upfront. So if the Atlantic hadn't seized this secret deck, I think that... That's the only way that influencer culture continue. I do think it's going to combust at some point, but we're not there yet. And as we can see from the increasingly tight regulation from the ASA, is that stringent marshalling of the truth and full disclosure when it comes to payment in return for posts uh, is becoming more and more important. I think what's mandatory is, as you say, transparency. And quite frankly, I'd like more of that from the entire media. I'd like more of it from magazines who aren't nearly so transparent as individual influencers are called upon to be. And the murkiness of this story is definitely what drives a lot of the fury. I have in the past worked with fashion brands on sponsored content, something I don't do now incidentally because I have, like many people, experienced rising levels of disinterest and dissatisfaction with Instagram, particularly when it comes to fashion. And I felt like I wanted to contribute less to that but that's a story for another day but it is absolutely crucial when you do anything branded that you are honest about it partly because I actually think there's a lot of shame attached to working with brands and I mean for as long as there has been the media publications have attached themselves yeah. to brands it's not a, it's not a new thing it's just it's a very new presentation of it but I totally agree even if it's Elizabeth Taylor doing, you know, a strut down the red carpet in a dress that she's been given or, you know, old school advertorial. I, th- I think it is, is, it's too naive to think that this is something that has just been created at the dawn of aesthetic social media such as Instagram. I just think it's, it's much, we seem to see it much more boldly now. Yeah, and the volume of it is yeah. uh, overwhelming. I saw several journalists on Twitter calling for Gwyneth Paltrow herself to fire Marissa. They were really hoping, obviously, for that kind of Alan Sugar boardroom style. So yearning for that schadenfreude, aren't they? And she's removed Goop from her social media bios, but I think that was probably only done on advice from the company as it's bringing negative attention to them. I doubt she'd get fired for this. It's very much the world she works in. It doesn't look cool, certainly doesn't look effortless, but she isn't breaking any laws. If you were Gwyneth Dolly, what would you do? I think you can't fire someone for being embarrassing on social media or being a bit cringy. Offensive, abusive or engaging in illegal activity, I can understand. But being not very cool or being very embarrassing, I don't I don't think you can fire someone on those grounds. And if that were the case, I would have no contracts left. <laughs> what is also worth considering about this story is 
all those decks that go unseen. Marissa is fairly small fry in this game. I'd have loved to have seen what the agents of Chiara Faragni, the world's most influential influencer, she's got 16 million followers and posts about four pictures a day, sent out when she married her Italian pop star boyfriend Fedez last year. This was like what you've seen on crack. And people absolutely went for it. I also think that a lot of people who kind of outwardly loathe this also have a little bit of admiration and a lot of envy in a way that they do with someone like Anna Delvey, who, to clarify, is a criminal. Marissa Fuchs is not a criminal. It's a little bit of, God, I wish I could be that shameless. This individualistic materialist world that we live in prizes free shit above anything. How often do you hear of someone who ate something or went somewhere just because it was free? And I'm sorry, but I hear that all the time like friends and family will say to me that's that's not an internet problem that's a mass temperamental problem yeah absolutely like friends and family will literally be like oh you're not gonna go to that it it would be free there is you know when when you work in the media you you become quite inured to the perks and that's not a particularly good thing but it certainly has shed light to me on that kind of obsession with something being free and I will always remember when I worked in an office there was this kind of dumping ground area where anything free that came into the newspaper that the recipient didn't want would go and there were several women very much not cut from the Marissa Casey Fuchs cloth I hasten to add just your regular middle-aged women who would take absolutely everything a scuffed children's suitcase a branded umbrella, a flannel. Those are just three of the things that I recall. They would do hauls every single day. So to have the opportunity to score endless free shit is one that a lot of people find very, very tempting. And then they're seeing this like very wealthy, very kind of Instagram woman asking or allegedly asking for way more free shit. And it Mm. just pisses them off. Does that lead into a wider cultural problem that we have about always needing new, new, new and more, more, more? Yes. And I'm writing about that right now, in fact. I think a sense of greed does really factor into the story. And I think perhaps that's the schadenfreude that we delight in, as you say, Panda, because most of us know as part of a arguably functioning capitalist society, we are all in some way complicit in the idea that we need more all the time. And we're a culture that is fueled by money. And this story is an actualization of that specific appetite. And whether it's bad behavior or not, whether it's something we're capable of or not, whether we would have done the same, whether we were in her position or not, that's almost irrelevant. It's just not comfortable to look at so directly. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Holiday season is upon us, as is some new research that shows British people are not so comfortable in their blistered and sunburnt skin. Nearly three quarters said they recoil when they hear another British accent while vacationing abroad. And 55% said they try to hide their nationality because they are ashamed of boozy, loutish stereotypes. Pandora, have you ever recoiled? I don't think I have ever recoiled. It's so dramatic. I know. (laughs) This story does tickle me so much, though, that sinking feeling when you hear someone screeching, pass us the sun cream, Simon! But that's less because I cannot tolerate my own people and more because I enjoy the language barrier of being abroad. Basically, I think this is just a survey about increasing introvertism, I think. Even more amazingly, one in ten say they affect a fake accent... So they won't be identified as British. Absolutely desperate to hear what these accents sound like. And I'm almost certain it will be like, hello, hello. I used to do that when I was a child as I was so desperate to speak other languages because shamefully I only speak English. 12% admitted they refused to get... (laughs) Sorry, it's so so extreme, this survey. 12% admitted they refused to get in a lift with other Brits in a bid to avoid small talk, while 11% said they never went to breakfast as they feared having to speak to fellow countrymen and women. I'm obsessed with this 12%. I think they might be even more of a loner than I am. 
I'm obsessed with the 11% coming back from holiday just read thin because you've been scrimping on food missing out on the buffet in fear of a want to borrow my daily mail and an (laughs) elbow jostle over the stewed peaches just put your headphones in and pretend to be having a conference call or be engrossed in a book this is all harder with children mind neither of the above options work seven percent ran off when they heard a fellow brit and five percent said they had hidden to avoid UK holidaymakers. 69% said they would rather stay in a villa than a hotel so they didn't run the risk of meeting another British person. have to say, obviously these stats do read as being quite miserable, but I am quite happy to read them. I travel on my own quite a lot and I hate the thought of chit-chatting all the live-long day to a bunch of English people. I'm almost allergic to the very notion of camaraderie. Uh, which I don't know why. I've spent a lot of time thinking about why. I don't know why I find it so embarrassing. I don't know why it makes me feel so cajoled. But I do. I don't like this sort of... I don't like that sort of British blitz spirit thing. And I also don't... I don't like patriotism. In fact, I hate patriotism abroad. It really cringes me out. And I find that sort of all Brits together attitude bonded by our great country kind of repugnant and I'm glad others do too because I've always felt like a bit of a curmudgeon I don't hate patriotism or blitz spirit at all but I'm entirely with you on the being quite happy by those stats because I don't go on holiday to make friends and I know that sounds dreadfully po-faced of me but I am like you pleased to see that I'm not alone in that why are we both so miserable has life done this to us I do love the idea of being caught hiding behind a pot plant oh so sorry I'm just hiding from my fellow countrymen it's quite black out of that (laughs) I was uh, quite reassured by this research as well because this may be reading a bit too much into it, but in a time of increased Euroscepticism, some would argue Europhobia, and beyond that, foreign phobia, or even more terrifyingly, just any sort of other phobia, it's heartening, I think, to know that the majority of British people have an active dislike of affiliating themselves only with other British people. For me, This is how I've decided I'm going to read it. It indicates more than just embarrassment of the stereotype of a boozy Brit on holiday. But instead, I think it shows an openness to new cultures. And yeah, that's how I'm reading it. I'm reading it as hopeful. I've got a slightly more cynical reading, which is we like to go on a holiday to escape ourselves. And if you see a boozy Brit, you feel like your own self is uh, chasing you. Oh Um, my God, that is what it is. How philosophical. The mirror held in front of you during aqua aerobics. (laughs) And we can't hate anyone more than we hate ourselves. Uh, Yeah, I suppose there's some comfort in that. (laughs) I also must say that while I don't want to spend my time travelling, talking to fellow British people about traffic and weather, there is one person I can excuse for the Brits abroad uniform of socks and sandals. And that is, of course, pink gin tube lady. (laughs) Thank you very much for listening to The Hilo. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. It helps other people find us and helps boost us in the charts. You can email us, thehiloshow at gmail.com or tweet us at thehiloshow. Bye-bye. Bye.